Hello, listeners, and hello, Summer. This is Laura Rogers, Deputy Director of the Antibiotic Resistance Action Center. In case you missed the news, our co-host Matt Wellington has left his post at U.S. Perg and is now with the Maine Public Health Association. So we're taking the summer off as we search for a new podcast co-host. We're re-airing some of our most listened to episodes. So this month, we're re-bringing you What Turned Aunt Mavis Blue, a discussion on tuberculosis. We hope you enjoy listening, and we'll be back with new episodes in September. Enjoy the warm weather. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Superbugs Unplugged from U.S. Perg and George Washington University's Antibiotic Resistance Action Center. My name is Matt Wellington. I'm the Public Health Campaigns Director for U.S. Perg. And I'm here with my trusty co-host, Dr. Lance Price. Do you want to say hi, Lance? Hello. Hello. So understated. Uh, So uh, later today in the episode, we are very excited. We're going to have a special guest, Dr. Carol Diane Mitnick, who is a professor of global health and social medicine at uh, Harvard Medical School. And she's going to be talking to us about tuberculosis Uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis and uh, things that we need to pay attention to there and also some potential solutions um, to that problem. But before we jump into that, uh, we're going to start off with just some news in the world on antibiotics and uh, antibiotic resistance. So I've got a couple things, but do you want to start, Lance? Do you have anything to add? I want to know what you're going to talk about. I'm I'm excited for for something other than covid or insane people trying to take over the state. Very, very true. So it is good news, which is nice. Um, so we spent a lot of time with some of our other partner groups like NRDC and uh, FACT working on appropriations this past cycle in DC and trying to get some good measures in there to reduce antibiotic use. And our big priority was to um, get language in the antibiotic sorry, not antibiotics, and the appropriations legislation that would direct the FDA to finally set duration limits on all medically important antibiotics used in food animal production. So Lance, you know the background on this, about a third of those medically important antibiotics have no defined duration, uh, which means meat producers can use them open-ended continuously for entire animals' lives on pretty much entire flocks or herds of animals. Bad news for antibiotic resistance. Um, We were f- successful in getting language in the report for that bill, which to give folks a little background on that. So the report language for the antibiotics, legisl- or I did it again. Antibiotics and appropriations is too similar. The report language for the appropriations legislation is basically like a guide that gets issued with the bill. So it's not legally binding, but it gives the um, lawmakers, you know, pretty much, and the, and the agencies, a framework for how they're supposed to spend that money that gets appropriated to them in the bills. So for the antibiotics portion of it, there's now language in the final appropriations report language that says FDA, by the end of, I think it's fiscal year 2021, has to set clearly defined duration limits consistent with public health protections by the end of fiscal year 2021. Uh, Again, it's not legally binding, but the good part about this is that Number one, we actually got something all the way through Congress, which is pretty pretty exciting, I think, on my end. Um, good to see that our, our government can function in some ways. 
Um, and it's going to give us a foot in the door to really hold the FDA accountable. They have to answer to that. It's not the kind of thing that they can just completely ignore. They have to come back with an answer um, to Congress about what they're actually planning to do to meet that deadline. So exciting news. What do you think? about Congratulations. That? That's really exciting. Um, yeah, it's just a small, small, but very good and important thing. Well, finally, some good news. Thank you, Matt. I'm excited about that. Um, so I, let's switch gears and let's talk about something really scary, uh, multidrug resistant tuberculosis. Hi there. This is Laura Rogers, Deputy Director for ARAC. If you're enjoying this episode, could you please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast? Please ask your friends and family to do the same. We really appreciate it. Now, let's get back to the episode. We've got our very special guest, Dr. Carol Mitnick, joining us, uh, who is going to talk to us about TB. And um, I'll pass it over to her to say hi to everybody. And it would be great if you could give us just a quick snapshot of your background, your expertise. And then I certainly have some questions and I know Lance does as well. Great, great. Thank you both so, um, so much, Matt, Lance, um, Laura, for reaching out. Um, so my name is Carol Mitnick. I'm um, at the Harvard Medical School in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. Um, my training is in public health, uh, infectious disease, uh, epidemiology, and ecology. Um, and I have spent the better part of 20 plus years working with a non-governmental organization, Partners in Health, on uh, the treatment of multidrug resistant tuberculosis and research to improve that treatment and, and really to improve access to care globally. Can you just explain tuberculosis? What's the history of the disease? How has it progressed? And then I'm also curious to hear how is it how does it fit in with drug resistance? Like, is it one of those things that popped up right away or is it something that we've seen more recently? Yeah, um, really interesting question. So tuberculosis is caused by a, a bacterium. Mycobacterium tuberculosis is, is the organism. Um, it's really been around for millennia. Um, there are lots of um, kind of creepy examples of mummies um, being uh, found to have had TB. And um, so it's, it's really been around as long as we, we can um, record. And um, it typically uh, affects the lungs. Um, but can also affect other other parts of the body. So we what we see most often is what we call pulmonary TB. Um, it's a disease that uh, it, it it there are about 10 million cases um, annually still in the world. I think many many people in the U.S. think that TB is a disease of the past. It it most certainly is not, um, and it strikes people who are vulnerable. And those vulnerabilities include co-infection, like with HIV, other comorbidities such as diabetes, um, hepatitis C, people who are malnourished are at heightened risk for TB. Close, uh, close extended contact normally. It's different from COVID-19 in that regard. It usually takes repeated or long-term exposure to transmit from person to person. Um, so that's the, the TB part of it. In terms of the resistance part of it, uh, basically resistance has existed since 
treatment um, first came to be in the middle of the last century. So the the very first efforts to treat TB um, were actually also the first um, random clinical trials. They used a single drug uh, to treat TB, and there was an immediate response in the in the patients who were randomized to receive that single drug, drug streptomycin, um, and then after an initial response, um, resistant bugs started to uh, take over from the drug susceptible bugs. So there was a, a, a form of selection going on for those resistant bugs. The, the many of the patients who were involved in this first trial um, ultimately died uh, despite having received treatment and responding initially. Today, so it, it's, it seems to me that it's one of the worst of the drug-resistant bacteria, right? So you have, uh, you know, you hear about things like MDRs so or multi-drug resistance. You know, you hear about that with lots of different bacteria. Mm-hmm. With TB, you start to hear this this term XDR, mm-hmm. right? And then I've mm-hmm. seen the term programmatically incurable TB, which scares me. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I mean, I think um, I think there there are a couple of really interesting things about TB. Um, So the first, um, you know, Matt, you mentioned in your work, you you don't hear a lot about about TB. And for reasons that are somewhat obscure to me, um, TB and drug resistant TB and antimicrobial resistance are often kind of discussed separately and dealt with separately. And and I and I I really don't understand why. I don't know if it's because much of the AMR conversation in the U.S. and even in many other parts of the world is focused on bugs that are transmitted in healthcare settings. It's really nosocomial transmission, and that's not so much the case with with TB, at least in the U.S., Um, or if it's for other reasons. But multidrug resistant TB is just another, you know, version of antimicrobial resistance. Um, and I think its its seriousness, Lance, comes at least in part from the fact that TB is an incredibly slow growing organism. And so even to treat just run-of-the-mill tuberculosis, fully susceptible TB, it requires six months of treatment. People typically receive uh, four drugs for two months and then two of the drugs for four more months usually daily treatment. And so when you are faced with drug resistant versions of of the the disease, bugs caused, excuse me, disease caused by bugs that are resistant to those standard drugs, um, the treatment is oftentimes 18 months to two years. Um, And it's not because those bugs are so much harder to kill. It's just because the drugs aren't as good, really. Um, and so, so we, what we've seen over the last 20 years or so is that patients with drug resistant TB have to be treated with five, six, seven drugs, including, um, a drug that's delivered intramuscularly every day for a period of eight or 10 months. And then the oral regimen goes on for another 18 to 24 months. Um, there have definitely been improvements in the last several years. So now we're seeing regimens more of a duration of nine to 12 months, even for drug-resistant TB. But That's brutal. Nine, um, nine to 12 months, exactly. Yeah, that's So how you're taking a drug, you're taking this cocktail of drugs that can make you feel sick, right? And... And 
so I, I imagine compliance, uh, compliance would be hard for a 10 day regimen, let alone, you know, 10 months. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's extremely difficult for people to stick with these, with these regimens. You know, usually people who have drug resistant TB have also been previously treated for TB. And so, you know, staying uh, either either having to stop work or school or not being able to care for one's family because of the disease and then because of the horrible side effects of these drugs, um, that's a really challenging combination for people. So globally, what's the breakdown for where TB is most uh, most prevalent. So I, I think it's not as much of an issue in the U.S. I'd be curious to hear why that is, but also where can you say where is it yeah. the biggest problem? Yeah. yeah. So the highest burdens of tuberculosis are primarily in Africa and in 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 Africa and in particular in places with high co prevalence of HIV. There's a lot of TB in India and China. I, I should say India and the sub the subcontinent, um, and in China, those are really the very high uh, TB burden settings. But you also have very very high uh, rates of drug resistant TB in kind of lower lower uh, background prevalence of drug, of TB generally in the former Soviet Union, Eastern Central Europe, Central Asia. Um, in Kazakhstan, something like 40% of all, of all TB uh, cases are caused by uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis that's resistant to first-line drugs, similar in the Ukraine, Belarus. Um, in terms of why not, so, why not so much TB in the U.S., it has a lot to do with uh, social conditions, with um, uh, those having improved dramatically through the late the late uh, 19th century and then really into the middle of the 20th century saw very steep declines in the U.S. and Europe um, in TB incidence and mortality from TB even before the first treatments became available. And then the wider spread availability of treatment in, say, the U.S. and Europe has kept has kept case rates lower while access to appropriate care is still a huge obstacle in much of the world. This is the disease that in like historical British dramas, when the person coughs into the napkin and they see the blood, they're like, oh, no, that's TB. Right. So it's like consumption, totally. I think, is what they call it. That's what it is. It's yeah, okay. it's consumption. It's the white death. It has all, all sorts right. of names. Yep. Yeah. So this is this is a, a strange question, but I have I had an aunt, my, my grandmother's sister, my aunt Navis. She was blue. She had a little blue tinge to her. And and the, the family lore, anyway, was that she had TB and she was sent away for treatment. And they treated her with silver or, or some other metal treatment for her TB. And she came back blue and she never lost it. Have you heard of it? Have you seen this? I don't remember... Um kind of pre-antibiotic treatment for TB, including metals. I, 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 I could be wrong about that. Um, the, you know, the, the convention before antibiotics was to send people to sanatoria. So to, back to Matt's point about like the English drama, you know, you'd have people in the countryside or in the mountains and they'd be 
they'd be outside um, if the fresh air was thought to be was thought to be good for people. Um, And honestly, it was probably largely good nutrition and lots of rest that allowed the immune system to to take care of the infection in some subset of really fortunate people. An untreated um, TB kills between 50 and 75 percent of the people it it affects. Um, well, you know, my mom told me that story. And, and as Lou Reed says, you can't always trust your mother. So, so you mentioned you mentioned the total burden being on the level of like 10 million people a year getting infected. But am I reading? Have I read this right? That that maybe one and a half million people die a year of TB today. Yeah. So so just to be clear. Um, 10 million people develop new active TB every year. The um, rate of infection is generally much higher because people can live with latent TB infection without ever showing any symptoms of the disease for their whole lives or for 20 or 30 years or until some immunocompromising event occurs, which results in the the kind of activation of that, that latent infection and something that their immune system can no longer suppress. Estimates, very rough estimates, are that about a third of the world's population is infected with mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, so, you know, much more than 10 million, more on the order of 2 billion people might be infected. That's a rough estimate. You are correct that um, uh, roughly one and a half million people are estimated to die of TB every year. A disease that has been treatable since the middle of the last century. Treatable, excuse me, curable since the middle of the last century. So that is pretty grim. And so I'm I'm eager to ask you, how do we stop that? Like, what would the solutions be? I know you said the drugs are not great. So I assume there's some, some um, when you do drugs, what, what do you think are some of the solutions? Yeah, I mean, the, honestly, the, the, the solutions are... Um, are distributing appropriate resources for the level of burden of disease and um, making it possible for people with TB to receive the drugs they need, receive appropriate care, you know, be excused. Some, some of the same things we're hearing in the, in the infection control context for COVID-19, letting people take sick leave, paid sick leave from, from work, having having social support systems that allow them to get well, well, um, and, and, you know, where somebody is still bringing food for their families or taking care of their children. Um, it's, it's really, it's not actually rocket science at this point. It's about maldistribution of resources as to why there is still so much TB in so many places and why we don't have much TB here or say in Europe. But with the, with the rise of drug resistance, do you think it's inevitable that, you know, if we get untreatable TB arising in low income, low and middle income countries, is it inevitable that those will eventually make their way into high income countries? Um, and, and they they have yes it is inevitable as you know our borders are are porous and and um, people people move and especially with a disease like TB where you can carry this latent infection for for decades um, and then reactivate you might be in a completely different setting than when you initially got infected um, 
So, so yes, uh, drug resistant TB remains a risk um, around the world. It is a risk that, that can be uh, mitigated everywhere in the world by ensuring appropriate treatment um, when people are diagnosed, increasing diagnostic capacity, and also using another tool that we've had in our armamentarium for the last 40 or 50 years, uh, which is treatment of latent TB infection. So you, you might have, um, some of you, you're not as old as I am, but um, in school, we used to get um, skin tests for TB, um, where you would look just to see if you'd, you had an immune reaction already to TB, which was a way of testing whether you were infected with the organism. And, and if you have a positive skin test, you can take a treatment that will um, really lower the of bugs in your body enough that your immune system can take care of it, and then you'll never develop active disease. That option has generally been restricted to uh, richer countries, to countries like the U.S., like Canada, um, like Europe. But in countries that have high burdens of TB, the basically the general global health policy has been focus only on the treatment of active disease. We, you know, if there, are, there aren't quote unquote enough resources to also try to prevent disease. So as you were saying all that, I, I just remembered, um, I think the first time I heard about drug resistant TB was in a lobby meeting. It was a, a lobby day for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. In our lobby meetings, he was talking about drug resistant TB and the role that the United States had to play. My question for you is what what role should we play as the United States, right? I mean, global health infrastructure, we pulled out of the WHO with the new administration coming in. What would you call on them to do to tackle this problem globally? Yeah, yeah, it's it's an excellent, excellent question. And I, I think it is a, um, a matter of uh, returning to important global health collaborations. It's a matter of um, using our um, really substantial foreign aid to uh, support uh, global health and to support improved uh, laboratories to support uh, greater numbers of healthcare practitioners in settings where there are high burdens of TB and the other comorbidities that that increase the risks of TB. Um, these are these have economic benefits on the populations. They have for those who are swayed by um, security arguments, um, improving the health of populations is, is strongly correlated with improving security and, and stability um, in, in those settings as well. Um, and more research. We're really, really, it's so clear um, how backwards TB is. We, until uh, very, very recently, we were still using the same drugs from the middle of the last century. The vaccine that is meant to prevent TB is from the early 20th century. The primary diagnostic until recently was from the late 19th century. Um, so more re resources for, for research and, and innovation are also critical. Do you, do you think with COVID-19 that we're on the brink of a a new enlightenment where we recognize that the infectious disease challenges of the developing world are our own challenges? Or do you think once we get through this, we're going to just go back to our myopic view and, and sort of bare our heads in the sand? Um, I, 
I, I, I fear the, the latter. Um, but I, I do think there are some incredible lessons um, to be learned that that might might prevent us from just uh, burying our, our heads in the sand again, as you as you aptly put it. We um, you know, what we're seeing in the midst of this pandemic in the U.S. and everywhere else is that like all of the other health services that the, the first response has been just to shut down. Right. So people weren't getting getting elective surgeries. People aren't getting preventive care here in, in many high burden TB and um, uh, HIV settings. Those services shut down. So people weren't getting their TB diagnosed. They weren't getting their TB treatment or their HIV. So really like looming disasters, um, even even more serious than just the direct impact of COVID. So I, I do think there's an opportunity to um, really understand the interrelatedness of, of the world, as well as of um, these uh, areas of, of the health systems that are often thought about separately and to um, I think this also highlights the need for innovation um, that allows people to receive appropriate care in times of health system disruptions, right? We don't, we hope we'll never see another pandemic like this one. Chances are that we will. But even if we don't see other pandemics, there are other natural and unnatural disasters that disrupt health systems all the time around the world. And having innovation like in TB and drug-resistant TB, shorter treatment regimens, simpler treatment regimens, diagnostics um, that can be done at the bedside, these are all critical to mitigating the effects of whatever disruptions we see in the future. So, uh, thank you. Uh, I the one other thing that strikes me about COVID nineteen is that is that in a, in less than a year we've had now dozens of potential vaccines, and TB has been around. It's been haunting us, you know, for as long as we've been us, right? And and somehow we haven't seen that that public effort to cure this? Is that because it's not here in the high-income countries? Yeah, yeah. No, it is it is really, um, this is an issue that, that can, can bring me to tears. Um, I do not like pitting each other. I don't like pitting people who suffer from one disease against people who suffer from another. I, I, don't, I don't think that's super productive for... Um, Kind of the long haul of global health and, and and improved improved equity and care. That said, um, you're a hundred percent right, Lance. That the the interest in TB here, the investment in, in TB here, has been very limited because it's invisible to most Americans. Um, there was a little bit of a of a resurgence in effort around TB that uh, accompanied um, HIV in in this country, and and and, and the understanding that it is a, a common a common um, co infection for people with HIV. But it was never even the most one here. And NIH has really, over the last several years, has tried to uh, increase uh, support for TB research and to leverage the HIV research platform for TB as well. But 
it's not, it's not on the nightly news. It's not in your, you know, most people aren't hearing about it in their neighborhoods or worrying about, about their neighbors or family members having TB. They might have an aunt or a great aunt like you who, who did, did experience it a half a century ago. Yeah. Well, Matt, there's your charge. I mean, uh, you know, Matt's group is really good at raising awareness around things. So Matt. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking when you said, you know, are we going to wake up from this or are we going to go back to sleep? And I was going to chime in and say, I think we do have a role to play in that, right? Like it, it kind of is up to us. It's not inevitable. We can make sure we do whatever we need to do and build the support and pressure our legislators so that they don't forget the lesson that we've learned from COVID. Absolutely. And that's what I plan to do. So I'll be working on that. Um, thank you. Well, thank you. So I know, I think we, we don't want to keep you for too much longer, Dr. Mitnick. So I think we're at our, our last question here, which is the, what is scaring? How do you phrase it, Lance? You can say this. This is your favorite one. Two questions. What freaks you out and what gives you hope? I think, I do think that what freaks me out is um, the ability of, of so many to turn, to turn a blind eye to the suffering of so many others. Um, and that, that until and unless it's in our faces, um, we were really, we really struggle to act, um, on in, in ways that can, uh, reduce the suffering of others. And so that, you know, as we were discussing with TB, not being something that's, um, in people's um, line of sight that it that it can still kill one and a half million people every year um, despite being curable or having been curable for more than 70 years like that's pretty uh, disheartening and and what gives me hope is these um, incredible advances that have been made for COVID, for HIV, for cancer, for other areas, and the ability to um, collaborate with with groups, say like PERG, with other groups to draw attention to how those can be used for innovation in diseases that disproportionately um, affect poor people. Uh, and and how these innovations can help um, uh, people's care and health systems be more resilient in in the face of inevitable disruptions. Thank you for that, and thank you so much for coming to speak with us. I, you know, what freaks me out is things like programmatically untreatable. Infections, and what gives me hope are people like you. So, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you guys so much for the conversation and for the opportunity to talk a little bit about drug resistant TB. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Superbugs Unplugged. We really appreciate it, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm Laura Rogers, Deputy Director for ARAC. Now that you've listened to us, we'd love to hear from you. Please send any questions you have our way, and we'll do our best to answer them in future episodes. We'd also love to hear your ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the coming months. You can reach us at superbugsunplugged at gmail.com. And one last thing, if you'd like to help us spread the word, please give us a five-star review and ask your friends and colleagues to subscribe. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and every major listening app. We'll talk to you again next month.